This week on the show, we cover full system backups with FFS snapshots, ZFS, and dump, tuning record size in OpenZFS, optimizing FreeBSD power consumption on modern Intel laptops. Remember to check for ZFS file systems being mounted is what Chris Seibenman reminds us about, and how to use TCP dump to save wireless bridges, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode Fahrenheit 451, without the Fahrenheit. Tuning ZFS record size, recorded on the 13th of April 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you like this episode and others, check out our Patreon page for supporting this podcast and our other activities we're doing here on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Heuschling. And Tom Jones. Welcome. We have a fresh episode for you recording just now, like we did the last 50, 100 years or so in the past. 450 times. <laughs> we, yeah, we've been keeping score. Yeah, just I was just reading the episode and Tom was like, hey, Fahrenheit and flammable stuff. And I was like, oh, I have never even thought about this. <laughs> uh, we could have made a this. censorship joke. Oh, right. Yeah, we can totally go this way. We're just not, we're not smart enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, people are more interested in our headlines this week. And the first year starts off with full system backups. Always a good topic with file, well, well, the file systems, of course, but with fast file system snapshots, ZFS and dump. And this combination is interesting. And you can find this on unitedbsd.com. And what's this is about? Well, uh, it starts off with... Uh, introducing the FFS snapshot. So this is uh, the NetBSD version of FFS, the fast file system version 2. And the author here writes, I'm positive not many know that NetBSD FFS v2 allows taking atomic file system copies of a mounted file system or part of it uh, the through the FF or the FSS, the file system snapshot device. So there's a separate device on NetBSD for that. These can be used to create backups or give fsck underscore ffs a consistent view of a previous version of the file system. For comparison, like uh, fscheck underscore ffs dash x, and having a snapshot ready before editing crucial configuration files under etc or performing etc updates is also a good idea. So yeah, this is like your boot environments on FreeBSD of sorts, but it goes on with basically what f SS does is providing a user space API for accessing file history by creating a read-only version or a view of it uh, of that file system at a given point in time. This view can be mounted with mount and used in conjunction with utilities like dump, tar, rsync, or more advanced backup utilities to create and export file system backups to a backup device. And for reference, uh, they strongly recommend reading the relevant wiki entry that's on the NetBSD wiki that's linked here on the article that's also linked from our show notes. So first of all, you should create a full system snapshot for the whole system, nothing left out. And to do this, you have a FSS config command dash CX, probably C for create and probably X for the comparison part. And you pass FF or FSS zero and then slash and var snap is also provided. So that will continue the FSS zero virtual device at node dev FSS0 should be an atomic copy of the root file system mounted at slash using, uh, yes, ah, here it goes, slash var slash snap, that's why it was provided as a temporary log to which new writes will be added for as long as the snapshot device is configured. Okay. In this case, the log shall be automatically unlinked after device configuration because the optional X switch. Okay. This is for the X. So to cross this out. Okay. To mount that snapshot, read only as mount slash snap, you do make dear of that directory mount slash snap and then mount dash uh, o's ro read only mount and then def fss0 and the, the destination is of course our just created mount snap directory okay then they do a df output to easily reveal it's a mirror of the root file system so that has the same number of blocks uh, in the used available and capacity columns and now use a zfs dataset as a target file system for backups Remembering they had an external HDD formatted as a zpool and mounted at slash ZFS, 
They will now create a dedicated data set with a maximum reserved quota of 500 gigabytes. That's not too bad to store the backups. So they do a ZFS create, not too uh, difficult and mounted already with the dash O mount point option. Then they set the compression to GZIP. That's what they chose. Then they also set the copies to two could be a good thing for if you have a single disk and only um, uh, yeah, a single disk copies two. It increases your rights, but in case a block goes damaged, then they can probably, not all in cases, but the chances are bigger, to retrieve the second copy on the different location on the disk. So that increases your chances of uh, recovery with a single disk. And also set the quota of 500 gigs. Cool. Now use the dump utility to create a full system backup. Dump utility and its restore counterpart are very useful when it comes to backups on Unix, even though their long legacy, which traces its root back to AT&T Unix version 4, make their design look a little vintage by modern standards. But in particular, being dump very tape drive oriented, it's advisable to always use the lowercase a option in order to bypass all tape length considerations. Yeah, so it doesn't complain, it just do the thing I know what's uh, I know what I'm doing. Then they recommended a couple other options for dump. Dash zero to perform a full system backup, not incremental. Dash U to update etc dump dates to keep track of successful writes or the dumps. And then dash F to specify the file to use as target for the backup. And without it, uh, the dump will default to def rst0, but who owns a tape drive? Question mark. Excellent. Yeah, so they do this here in a little script, or at least with a screen output here. And then they see the dump was recorded in etc dump dates. That's the recent date from the time they wrote their blog post. By inspecting the dump file, we can see it's backup of the snapshot and had it previously created. So they do file on this dump and they uh, the file utility dutifully tells us that it's a dump file with little endian. This dump was created on that date and so on. Okay. We can also see that the size of the backup is significantly reduced compared to that of the used root file system due to the inherent compression. Yeah, that's ZFS doing its work. And all the above commands can be put together in a script and executed periodically by a cron job. In this way, we can assume or assure that always have a relatively recent backup to restore. And additional considerations is that the restore utility can be used to extract dump backups. Yeah, in case you need to do the restore if something goes wrong or you need your files back, um, then you can extract those dump to backups to a target directory that uh, in which restore is executed. And they also show how to do that. Uh, that will extract to slash alt root a backup of the system as it is at uh, of the date when this post was written. Okay. An alternative to dump backups is using something like rsync to incremental backups of a FFS snapshot to a target file system. And for example, supposing they wanted to mirror the newly created snapshot to the snap ZFS data set, they do an rsync and... Uh, yeah, provide target and destination. Hope this can turn useful to anybody looking for simple backup solutions on NetBSD using the tools available in base. So now my question is here, why are they not using some of the ZFS features then? I mean, they can do after they dump to a ZFS, they can also, you know, move this to a different file or send this to a different host even. But of course, the, the dump needs to be done um, if it's a non-ZFS file system in the first place. Yeah, I didn't understand why they would use dump as as well as ZFS, or just move snapshots around. Yeah, because they're, strange. I mean, atomic, easily created. Um, but maybe it's uh, uh, NetBSD not being on the latest version of ZFS. I'm not sure what the current status there is, um, but it's definitely a way to back up your system. It's pretty cool. I don't know if you've come across UnitedBSD before, but it seems to be a BSD forum. I was like poking around while you were reading the article. Yeah. Um, Really interesting. Mm, yeah, we'll probably cover more from their site if they have interesting content there. So definitely check it out. Yeah, pretty cool. And so next up, we have an article from Clara Systems, and this is Tuning Record Size in OpenZFS. Uh, and they write, while basic advice for compression is simple, enable it, record size is a more challenging topic. Before we can begin discussing how to tune it, let's run through a quick refresher on what record size actually means. First, let's talk about sector size. Sector size in OpenZFS must be a power of two and is set with the A shift property. For example, A shift equals nine corresponds to sectors two to the power of nine bytes wide, and an A shift of 12 corresponds to sectors of two to the power of 12 bytes wide, 512 bytes and 4,096 bytes respectively. A shift is a VDEV wide setting, must be set when creating each VDEV, and is immutable once set. It cannot be manipulated afterward, 
or on a per data set basis. If a VDEV makes it into a pool with a bad A shift value, for example, a Samsung SSD which lies to ZFS and claims to use 512 byte sectors, don't trust hard drives, mm -hmm. and an admin doesn't manually specify uh, the A shift when creating a VDEV with it, the only recourse is destroying the pool and building it from scratch. Records, blocks, and vol blocks. Now that we understand sectors, let's talk about the next OpenZFS unit, the block. A block is a collection of one or more sectors and is treated by OpenZFS as an immutable, indivisible unit. Once written, a block can only be read in full or unlinked, deleted. It cannot be partially read or modified in place. If you're using RAID Z VDEVs, blocks are striped across the members of the VDEV. For example, a one mega, maybe, a one oh, maybe bytes. Uh... Maybe byte block <laughs> on a 10 wide RAID Z2 VDEV will be split into eight 128 QB byte data pieces with 228 QB byte parity pieces with one stored on each disk of the VDEV. Please tell us if I have said these units wrong because it would be really funny to get this email. Uh, you might wonder why we're spending so much time talking about blocks when the article is about the record size property. The answer boils down to inconsistent nomenclature. The record side property sets the maximum logical size of blocks in an OpenZFS dataset, while the vol block size property does the same for blocks in a ZVOL, but to OpenZFS developers and within the OpenZFS code base, the relevant, uni relevant unit is referred to as a block in either case. Vol block size is fixed, but record size is dynamic. Now we understand what a block is. Some liberties with the term under, <laughs> word understand here. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more depth that we could find. Uh, now we understand what a block is, we can talk about actually tuning its size. Whether we're tuning vol block size for Z vols or record size for data sets, the value must be an even power of two. Currently, vol block size defaults to eight kilobytes, 16 kilobytes in the future, and record size defaults to 128. So far, this seems pretty simple. Set vol block size equals 64K. You get 64 kilobyte blocks in your Z vol, and that's it. But record size is a bit trickier. The blocks in a data set are dynamically sized, and the record size sets the maximum size for the blocks in the data set, not a fixed size. Understanding, understanding the dynamic nature of blocks in a data set is crucial to tuning it properly, as we'll see in the next section. Those that have significant experience with storage likely already know that the small random block IO is the most punishing form. Oh, yes. Be tempted, therefore, to set record size arbitrarily low. If the pain lies at four kilobytes, one might reason then you should tune for four. After all, isn't your home directory absolutely littered with tiny dot files? <laughs> the relationship between blocks and files inside a data set. Uh, first, let's talk about the relationship of blocks and files inside a data set. A block can never store data from more than one file, but a file may consist of many blocks. The blocks of an individual file will always be the same size, set when the first block is written. That size will be the lowest power of two that will fit all of the data up to the maximum, the record size. This means that 10 tiny files will be stored in 10 tiny individual blocks, and those blocks may be as small as a single sector each, regardless of how large record sizes, a file that is larger than 20 kilobytes will be stored with a block size of 32. If that file later goes to 60, it will be rewritten as a single 64 kilobyte block. We don't have to worry about files that start small and eventually grow. The first block will be written each time the file grows until it reaches the record size, then a second block will be added. This is the dynamic aspect of records that we foreshadowed in the previous section. For a simple file sharing, you should typically set record size equals one, one megabyte. Uh, tiny files will take care of themselves by being stored in tiny blocks, requiring no additional tuning, but your large files get the benefit of higher compression ratios, fewer IO operations required to read and write, um, fewer indirect blocks, and less impact from on-disk fragmentation. This raises the question, when should you choose record size smaller? Perhaps even smaller than the default 128K, you use small record size when you have small block size random IO inside larger files. Let's say that you have a MySQL database sitting in a data set we'll call tank slash MySQL. By default, the InnoDB storage engine uses 16 kilobyte pages, which means MySQL wants to perform random reads and writes inside uh, massive individual files 16 kilobytes at a time. This in turn means we should perform ZFS record size equals 16K, a tank slash MySQL for optimal performance. This avoids both read and write amplification within MySQL IO tasks. 
However, we might want to make sure that the only the MySQL data storage is affected by the setting because as we discussed earlier, small files take care of themselves and record size 16K is drastically lower than optimal for general purpose storage. VM image files are another excellent example of workload benefiting from tuning. If you're using uh, the Linux KVM hypervisor with file-based storage, the default QCOW2 cluster size is 64 kilobytes, and you should perform ZFS set record size equals 64K on the data set holding those files to match. Modifying record size doesn't modify existing data. You now know the majority of what you need in order to properly trune record size to match your workload. In short, general purpose file sharing demands large record sizes, even when individual files are small, but random IO within files demands record size be tuned to typical IO operations within those files. Merely setting the record size on a data set won't change the structure of the blocks that which were already written to it. The block size of a file is set when the block is first written. In order to change the record size of existing files, you must actually rewrite the existing files. Using simple tools like CP or rsync is generally the easiest way to force blocks to be resized. In particular, you should be aware that OpenZFS replication will not resize blocks for you. Replication occurs on a per block basis and will not coalesce smaller blocks into larger ones or vice versa along the way. A very brief note about vol block size. As discussed earlier, vol block size is to zvols, zvols, what record size is to datasets. A zvol is a ZFS block level device which can be directly formatted within with another file system, uh, such as ext4, ntfs, xfat, uh, or so forth. A zvol can also be used as direct storage for applications which make use of raw, unformatted devices. In general, datasets can be thought of as ZFS file systems and zvols as ZFS virtual disk devices. For the most part, tuning advice for vol block size matches the advice for tuning record size, match the block size to the typical random IO operation size expected. However, vol block size is completely fixed rather than dynamic. Typically, you still want to tune for the application being hosted. So 16 kilobytes for MySQL in ODB store or 8K for PostgreSQL store, not some larger value. In conclusion, now that you know how to properly tune record size, we encourage you to look over your existing pools and datasets and ask yourself, where setting it explicitly might benefit you. And then they, they give some rules of thumb. I got really hung up there because I say ZVOL and ZFS and I don't know why. <laughs> why is it not, why is it not ZVOL and ZFS? Well, pronunciation in ZFS is always like, oh, we tread lightly here. Be careful, how, minefield. How did, how did I get both? How did I get, but what happened there? Is this why people think I sound like an American? Probably, or that <laughs> this should be an episode where Alan is on, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would just have a fight about it. And this is this is a great article, but they don't tell you how to figure out what your your typical right workload is. Pr pronunciation first, right? Oh no, no, like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> in can, in international phonetic alphabet, let's talk about a problem we can actually solve. Yeah. like <laughs> figuring out what the workload is. Um. I've been reading a great book I'm going to review for the FreeBSD Journal called Understanding Systems Performance, which is about like Ooh. understanding systems performance. That sounds um, cool. If you've if you've read the Brandon Gregg books, like the BPF book or uh, the Dtrace book or Systems Performance Analysis, mm -hmm. um, they are like reference texts. Oh yeah. Like if you've actually read them, they're not the most thrilling reading. They're great to have read through so you know where to look for things. Yeah, right. And not, they're really helpful when you to, have a problem. Not cover to cover, but like picking a certain thing from the index and then going reading yeah. there. Whereas Richard Seitz's book, uh, Understanding Systems Performance Dynamics, I, I can't remember the words, um, is like case study driven. And so this is like the question I had here, like how do you figure out what the typical case is, is great. Like really um, light statistics and analysis and tools for digging into problems like this right that's, that's really cool this is figuring out the baseline like is this a normal behavior or well okay because I, I mean like so like because you have I've to not read, yeah and i've not read the whole book yet but mm -hmm. there's a difference between the baseline and the normal behavior okay because your baseline you could just be sat doing nothing all the time uh and you can measure your system and it's idle and you're like well the computer never does anything uh, yeah and you actually find that your this typical is working time is different yeah, uh, it's it's a good book. I mean, I'm gonna I will recommend it when I review it. I've read like half of it. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I got value from it. Yeah, I, I started collecting like books like these and tuning advice from that book, from Brendan Gregg's book, and some others because I was thinking like creating a performance measuring uh, like the for oh, for the university like book. a course. 
Ah, yeah, it's much worse than um, my my working title was spam systems performance and monitoring. Uh, Needs some work, right? But I haven't had time to pull it together. So don't expect anything in the future. But I have enough material that I could probably do it as a block course or something. And and it includes D-trays, of course, and some practical stuff. We could could rope in uh, Jim, the editor of the FreeBSC Journal, and write a book. Yeah. (laughs) Let's pitch it. They had a a call. Oh, okay. (laughs) Give us an advance for a book. Yeah, we'll we'll figure something out. Okay, um, you heard it here first. (laughs) Let's go into our news roundup this week. Uh, We have optimizing FreeBSD power consumption on modern Intel laptops. Oh, that sounds exciting, especially as a good bridge from our performance discussion. So this one reads uh, from Neil C. I think this is Neil, one of the Neils, Neil Chauhan. Yeah, oh, that's correct, pronounced. Uh, optimizing FreeBSD power consumption on modern Intel laptops, because who hasn't one? Uh, my current FreeBSD laptop is a 2020 14-inch HP Spectre X360, which uses an Intel's 11th generation CPU and Evo platform. Although I previously also had the 13-inch 2020 version with a similar setup, but lacked working audio on non-Windows. Mm. Did, did HP name their computer after an Intel processor vulnerability? Or after a James Bond movie. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Whichever yeah, comes first. Or ghost. A ghost. <laughs> Ghosts. Careful for ghosts. Yeah, be careful. They're, they're around. Um, this article isn't specific to HP. Your shiny new Lenovo ThinkPad, Dell XPS, or Framework laptop can also apply. Yeah, so this is general advice then. So one thing with FreeBSD is that unlike Windows or desktop Linux, the default configuration is poorly optimized for laptops that are newer than your ancient ThinkPad T420 or maybe a T460S. And having run FreeBSD on Tiger Lake on and off since December 2020 on two laptops, there's a few things to keep in mind. These are, uh, there's an update here for that section. Uh, oh, which means it's obsolete because the oh, 13.1 release candidate 2, which should become an official release soonish. Maybe the next time we'll record another episode. But um, this works with DRMK mod from GitHub if you use the 5.9 branch. So I can probably skip this part. Yeah, so let's move on to the actual power consumption bits. Uh, a big problem with newer Intel CPUs is that the fan is constantly running by default, and these laptops get real hot. It's not just Intel Tiger Lake, but also Intel Whiskey Lake. Like, now who comes up with the names for, for Intel CPUs? That's a different question. Uh, that's the 8th generation refresh, uh, or an older 2018 13-inch HP Spectre X360, which presently is my secondary laptop. Okay, some of these issues is FreeBSD default Intel SpeedShift, or ISS, a configuration which makes more sense for desktops and servers or anything lacking a battery than laptop. By default, the ISS optimizes the clock for the whole CPU, all cores, and then each core individually. To fix that, you can include this in your bootloader.conf, macdep.hpw, uh, hwp state this way, underscore pkg underscore control equals zero. So pkg has nothing to do with like package install and stuff. This is your CPU package that's what they call it so you set this control thing to zero which will make the iss control core based so if one core is busy your fans won't be as loud okay so that's good to know you can also optimize iss for maximum power savings as opposed to quote unquote balanced which helps improve battery life even more if you do this you need this in your etc sysctl conf um i just read the first two and then you get where this is going def.hwp state underscore intel dot zero dot epp equals 100 then the same one but but with just another different number like for each core that you have you have def hp state intel one dot epp two dot epp and so on yeah so n is the number of cores if you have 72 cores then there's a bit of typing you probably should write yourself a little shell loop for that (laughs) okay um so zero is the maximum performance for the value that you assign so here they assigned 150 means is a balance which is the default and 100 that's what they did here is a maximum power savings okay uh so they uh so neil here keeps def.hp state intel uh dot whatever at 100 which he recommends for a laptop but it's optional okay so that you have to maybe figure out on your own what's best for you and the current notes is that if you run release or stable feel free to skip this section 
still like to run stable with a few patches for security and router notices, but uh, let's look at that anyway. However, if you run current as a desktop like me, power consumption can be improved by running the generic dash no debug kernel. Yes, without the debug symbols there and disabling debugging symbols in user land. This is a good idea provided you are planning to do kernel hacking on your laptop or do it in a virtual machine. And he provides instructions for etc source.conf to do that. Uh, that's probably known for a lot of people that are running uh, current on uh, as a production of sorts uh, machine with malloc production equals yes and without LLVM assertions equals yes. Okay, um, yeah, while not specific to new Intel CPUs, enabling metadata mode on source builds can quicken updates. You can find information on FreeBSD's wiki. The results here is that uh, even though I can't stop the fan from running, I can stop it from running loud most of the time. On a stock FreeBSD, doing about anything means a loud fan. With FreeBSDs tuned according to this document, it's quiet as a mouse. Well, almost. The fan still runs and that's normal, but when it does it's much quieter yeah because as he said up uh earlier then only one cpu is spinning and the other ones don't need to, to run the fans that loud but at least one fan needs to be running because there's always one cpu doing the idle loop <laughs> whatever oh uh, no i mean i'm sure you, you must be able to run this without the fan going but i mean so i have a 10th gen knock here yeah, I might actually benefit from some of these sayings mm. yeah i will um, probably try this on my thinkpad i mean this is an older generation intel but could also help. Yeah, the EPP stuff's not something I'd heard of before. Um, well. The speeds shift. Uh, I tried to turn the fan off on my NUC, and uh, what I had to do was set the minimum rate to zero because the minimum RPM was 35%. Mm. Um, and I turned it back on because it got really hot. And I just like, I think this computer's going to die. <laughs> yeah, just not overheated. <laughs> I don't know why it's so hot. And how it's does this always go? So I mean, power consumption he should have done some measurements like how much battery time i can save this way or if it's actually giving me something like half yeah, an hour or four that'd time. be cool um I, I wanted to do power consumption measurements on a pinebook pro mm -hmm. um and i wanted to get baseline from linux and so i wrote a shell script shell script that used the really cool thing that we don't have in freebsd which is the rtc um like a rtc wake subsystem mm -hmm. so you can say like i'm going to suspend wake me up at this time or in 10 minutes. Oh. And so I wrote a shell script to suspend and resume and just read the battery so I could see how much battery it used while it was suspended. Oh. This is an ARM platform, so it's got weird suspend. Uh, <laughs> and I, I couldn't actually run the script more than three times like because the computer would resume, but then the, the desktop manager wouldn't log in again. Oh. And it just, just wouldn't run. But it wouldn't let me log in. Like It was up <laughs> and awake, and I could turn, like, change VTT, VTTYs, uh, but I couldn't... Uh, use the computer it's mm, hilarious not work probably yeah it's really cool um <laughs> okay yeah it'd be great if you could run like a power monitor to see like what the differences are or get this from the system mm. what if the system has this information yeah this is an area where people can still optimize freebsd and if someone is interested in this kind of work because power is also an optimization target right let's optimize for power especially on these embedded and laptop devices yeah okay next up we have uh a blog post, a personal wiki entry from Chris Siebenman. Uh, Chris writes, I need to remember to check for ZFS file systems being mounted. Over on the Fediverse, I said something. I keep relearning the ZFS lesson that you want to check, not only for the mount point of ZFS file systems, but also that they're actually mounted. Since ZFS can easily have unmounted datasets uh, due to e.g. replication in progress. We have a variety of management scripts on our file servers that do things on all ZFS file systems on this file server or a specific ZFS file system if it's hosted on this file server. Generally, they get their list of ZFS file systems and locations by looking at the mount point property. We set an explicit mount point location for, for all of our ZFS file systems instead of using the default location. Most of the time this works fine, but every so often one of the scripts has blown up and we've quietly fixed it to do better. The problem is that ZFS can be visible, ZFS file systems can be visible in things like ZFS list and have a mount point property without actually being mounted. Most of the time, all ZFS file systems with a mount point will actually be mounted. So most of the time, the simpler version works. However, every so often we're moving a file system around with ZFS send and ZFS receive, and either uh, an initial replication of the file system sits unmounted on its new home, or the old version of the now migrated file system sits unmounted on its old file server, retained for a while as a safety measure. It's not hard to, f to fix our scripts, but we have to find them. And then remember not to make this mistake again when we write new scripts. 
This time around I did a sweep over all of our scripts looking for use of ZFS list and the mount point property and so on. I didn't find anything where we were now weren't also checking the mounted property. Hopefully it will stay that way now I've written this entry to remind myself. Sidebar. Two other reasons, two reasons other file systems don't have this problem. The obvious reason that other file systems mostly don't have this problem is that they sort of don't have a state where they're present with a mount point assigned to them but not actually mounted. The less obvious reason is that most file systems don't have a separate tool to list them. Instead, you have to look at the output of mount or some other way of looking at what file systems are mounted. And that obviously excludes file systems that aren't. You can do the same thing with ZFS using ZFS list and so on is often more natural. With other file systems, rough equivalent to having a no auto file system in such etc slab that's not currently mounted. If you get your list of file systems from fstab, you'll see the same sort of issue. Of course, in practice, you mostly don't look at fstab since it doesn't reflect the life state of the system. Things in fstab may be unmounted and things not in fstab may be mounted. Isn't that why mtab exists, mount tab? Doesn't that- I've never heard of this. Doesn't that, this I mean, not on FreeBSD probably, no. <laughs> but the Linuxes, I think they have this thing. Oh, okay. That's cool. Well that, well, that thing, well, reading the title, just need to remember to check if a file system is mounted reminds me of a FS checkup that happened at work uh, the week before I went to holiday uh, by a student who accidentally deleted our central staff store where I store all my, you know, configuration <laughs> files cool. and distribution files of sorts for the big data cluster. And it was basically Ansible running, doing a, a check if... Um, a file system, I mount the file systems via NF, or not NFS, Ceph, and then copy the, the data over from there locally because it's faster than coming it from the controller or from my laptop. And then, um, so he had the task there to unmount it and then re delete something there. And for whatever reason, he didn't check if it, the unmount actually happened. So what happened is he unmounted, that failed for somehow, the task continued and happily erased everything on the Ceph mount. And I'm like, okay, I can restore these things. It's not too bad because it was mostly config files that I could restore from the live system there. But in practice, this could have happened also to me. So I'm not too uh, worried about that. I must just... <laughs> This is, you should also check after unmounting if something is actually unmounted because there's return codes and all these things, remember? And so, yeah, but this could have easily happened to me. So now I do it on an NFS share from a ZFS file system that has the read-only property set to yes. So there, the files are there. And even if Roo tries to delete stuff there, it can't. And if I need to modify these things, then I will do it in an atomic way like uh, set read only to no, copy the files, and then set read only to yes immediately so that nothing in between can uh, delete. Yeah, but this is just a side note. I will probably have to do some restore when I get back from holiday. Anyway. Cool. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, they were important files, but they were not, oh, this is the only backup copy. And, I, and then I also found out that our IT department who runs the Ceph store does happily replicate the Ceph store between two other buildings, but they don't keep backups. I'm like, oh. why are you replicating then? And it's like, yeah. hey. But they were like, yeah, we have a backup system now. and It's much bigger than the actual Ceph store, but we haven't started the copy process because it's so much, uh, taking so much time to copy that. It's like, yo, the one time that I need those backups. It's fine. I can restore all these files. They were basically distribution files from the web that I downloaded to not go to the web each time when I install. But yeah, yeah it's definitely a learning uh, that happened from there. Okay, next up is something from Tom's blog that we found interesting enough to repeat it here or just, just read. It. And since Tom wrote this thing, we thought it would be better if I read this because he knows every sentence that he typed there. It's been a while. I, I don't know, I wrote it eight years ago. Okay, so I can't remember a lot it's, it's also a refresher of sorts. <laughs> so it's about using TCP dump to save wireless bridge. And so why this is important or why could this be of interest? Uh, so you did for temp, for campground, this is a conference, uh, campgnd.com if you're interested. Uh, we need to extend a wireless network about 500 meters from the farm down to the site. So that's on a campsite. You can probably imagine where the name is. So we have been trying to salvage some equipment, but we're having trouble. We are having trouble getting control of a pair of Sinao wireless bridges, the Sinao long range multi-client bridge. And you provide a little uh, image there so that we have an idea what this looks like. The devices had or has previously been configured by someone else to bridge a network between two buildings. Problem being, we have no idea how these boxes have been set up. 
Looking online, there was nothing helpful about factories setting these boxes unless you already had access. I decided to put a box on our ethernet and use TCP dump to scan for any traffic coming from the MAC address on the bottom of the bridge. So here's the TCP command uh, for the people who have never run TCP dump, uh, dash E dash I for the interface, ether, because you only want to have ethernet packets captured and then source addresses and then the MAC address of the, uh, yeah, of the bridge. After reboot of the bridge, the following appeared in his terminal. Uh, something UI unknown, broadcast, ether type, whatever. Length request who has something, tell that other host, length 46. Bingo, exactly what I was looking for. That ARP request tells us where the bridge thinks it is 10.0.2.1 in this case. Now I could navigate to the bridge's web interface, but I was still locked out. I read through the manufacturer guide for the bridge, but I still couldn't see anything that looked like a factory reset. The guide did mention that the default IP for the bridge was 192.168.1.1, and it used an admin admin username password combination as the login. Okay. I decided to try powering on the bridge with the hardware button held down. I left TCP dump running, so if there was any change on the bridge interface, I held down the reset switch and powered the bridge on, counting to 30 seconds. I then toggled the power and finally saw in your TCP dump again. Broadcast ether type ARP, length 60, request who has 192.168, we're getting there, 1.66, and tell 192.168.1.1, length 46. The bridge had reset it to the factory default, and with admin admin, you could log in and make changes as you liked. Cool. That's, yeah, intelligent use of the tools that are on any BSD box. TCP down. I, I don't think we use these. I think we ended up using a, a WRT54G with a Yagi, hmm. pointed at something else with a Yagi. I think that's what we did. We also put Ethernet in a tree, which is a much harder than it's on a tree. In a tree. Was like, it a spanning like, tree? Sorry, I had to make No, that no, joke. like, like, like we ran like, I don't know, 50 meters of ethernet from the house over a small road. And we had to raise it up really high. Yeah. And we had to like raise it up higher than a tractor. And so we put it in a tree with like really long bamboo canes mm. uh, duct taped together. Wow. And it was uh, a great adventure. I can imagine. Basically entirely impractical. Engineering uh, and gardening in one place. <laughs> uh, and in subsequent years, I bought a pair of um, ubiquity nano stations, like secondhand on eBay, like really cheap. Um, and they're five gigahertz, but we realized that the beam spread of the five gigahertz was enough to go over the brow of a hill. Because the oh. problem is that the, the where we had internet is at a farmhouse at the top of a hill, and then it like cuts off and it's quite steep. Mm. And the campsite, like you couldn't see because it was too low down. And we fixed this with like two lighting stands and some point-to-point -point access points in it, and it worked out fine. Um, because we could go from the house without having to go across the road. Because someone did actually drive into the cable uh, uh, that I found out later. It didn't, didn't affect us. Okay. Uh, the funny thing from this, though, is... Oh, there's so many funny things from this. In the background of the picture, there is a turned-off plug, and I'm pretty sure it says, do not turn off on it. <laughs> um, and Oops. on the left of the image, there's an Atari portfolio, which you might know from Terminator 2. Uh, oh, right. When I used to rob ATMs. Um, yeah, it's funny looking at the wireless equipment and remembering how slow the internet was just eight years ago because we didn't care that we were only going to have like oh, a 10 megabit connection because the farmhouse we had internet from only had like six megabit down anyway. Yeah. So it just didn't matter. But at least you had Wi-Fi or networking at all in the camp. We did have networking in a field, yeah. yeah. Excellent. And that's how you find stuff out when listening on the wire. Okay, um, great article. Then we have Beastie Bits also this week uh, with FreeBSD on the Vortex 86DX CPU uh, over on campus.net about, uh, oh yeah, DMP eBox 3300AH. Uh, after trying NetBSD and OpenBSD on my DMP eBox, that thing, with the Vortex 86DX CPU, I was curious to see how FreeBSD would fare on such constrained systems these days. Okay. Uh, for more information and background about the hardware, there's a definitely uh, readable or worth reading a previous article that's linked there. Attempting to install FreeBSD 13.0, failed early in loading the kernel, and both supported releases from the FreeBSD 12 series, 12.2 and 12.3, also exhibit the same failure. Huh. Okay, FreeBSD 13.0 release notes mention that the default CPU type for the i386 architecture is now a 686 instead of 486, 
and have defaults or details on the rationale behind this change. After digging a bit, it turns out that some Vortex 86 CPUs lack support for the conditional move or C move instruction and code targeting I686 will fail on these modules. Hmm. Using dump. Uh, to disassemble the kernels for the 12.2, 12.3, and 13.0 releases revealed that they were indeed using CMOF. Performing the same checks on the kernel for FreeBSD 12.0 and 12.1 releases did not show any CMOF instructions used, and the FreeBSD 12.1 installation process completed successfully and I could reboot into the installed system without issues. Cool. This version is not supported anymore, but it doesn't matter in this case as it's more of a one-off thing for the purpose of writing this post. The machine being too constrained for any real-world usage in this day and age. For installing package and binary packages, I had to modify the URL directive in etc package freebsd.conf. Oh yeah, to get the older package ABI. Um, they changed that to release underscore two instead of quarterly or even latest. Instead, oh, indeed, quarterly packages and release underscore three packages are apparently targeting I686 and their binaries contain CMOF instructions. Attempting to run I686 binaries results in the following error, illegal instruction, core dumped. Uh, yeah, that we probably have seen uh, in the past also. We can verify that the culprits are indeed CMOF instructions with the following program. There's a little uh, assembler program where you actually start or call the CMOF instruction or CMOF L in this case. And let's assemble link and run it. They also show how to do that. And they get an immediate illegal instruction core dump message. If it's out of the box or out of the way. We now have a fully functioning FreeBSD 12.1 installation on this machine. Our freshly booted system 16 processes are running and most of the RAM is unused. Okay, nice, not bad. They did a bit of benchmarking yes. to see how fast it is and also provide the full D messages at the end. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. I I think I think there are like AMD computers in this form factor in the hackerspace that I've always wanted to do something with, <laughs> but they're like so so weird and such odd little machines. Yeah. It's really cool though. And if they're still running, they can still run an older release. Yeah, of course. Very nice. Cool. All right. Next up, we have uh, a couple of posts from the Dragonfly BSD Digest. And first up, we have um, Hammer 2 versus USB Stick Pools. This is by Justin Sherrill. Um, it's apparently possible to get a panic by yanking a Hammer 2 disk out of your system, which is only likely when using a USB thumb drive, forming it to Hammer 2 and not bothering to unmount it. Anyway, that poorly described problem by me is fixed. And he links to a commit. I don't know. Um, yeah, I commit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then next up, they have a new US mirror for Dragonfly. Sandy River is the newest Dragonfly mirror with ISOs and Dports packages. And I don't know what Sandy River is. Uh, is that a CPU architecture from Intel? Like Sandy... It does sound like an uh, Intel it, product, it, doesn't it? It has the, the tone of it. It's like Sandy Bridge and Sandy whatever. Uh, Sandy Lake. Yeah, Sandy Lake, yeah. Sandy Lake. Um Sandy River that's not resolving. It's cool that they have another mirror, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, mirrors are always appreciated because they draw a lot of bandwidth, and um, as you can tell. And so it's always good to, for the people who provide those, thank you to all the projects doing these. Um, we also found something from the Hello Systems folks uh, because they have a new ISO available, the 13.1 RC1. I mean, by the time of this uh, episode coming out, you may have the release already, but not. Uh, too bad if you checked it out or if there's a delay. Um, this is an experimental build for developers and testers. Regular users should get the latest released version instead. So you can download the Hello System FreeBSD 13.1 AMD 64 ISO. And if you ask what's Hello System, it's a desktop system for creators with focus on simplicity, elegance, and usability based on FreeBSD. Less but better. So it's a similar thing like uh, looking uh, very similar to uh, older macOS uh, desktops. And, yeah, and then, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. No <laughs> Next up, we have uh, a YouTube video uh, by the YouTuber RootBSD, and it is titled, OpenBSD is based. And the description is, hello, Silicon Surfers of the Cyber Seas. <laughs> is OpenBSD based? Let's find out. And I watched a little bit of this, and I do not know what that means. Uh, what does it mean to be based? Time in their release cycle that they have a new version available, like the major OpenBSD 7.0. Oh, then we should okay. cover this in a separate episode, right? If they have a major release coming out, then we should give it enough uh, limelight. Yeah, I'm reading some of the YouTube comments, and I'm not very happy about it. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that means. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an okay video. I liked the music at the start, actually. 
Okay. Very, very uh, Tom in the afternoon. Very good. Yeah, it seems like YouTube has become one place where people can like pick up stuff uh, about operating system to see what how people use the system or get tutorials this way. We're always discussing like internally, is this a good way to teach people about the operating system? It's one way. I mean, we have a lot of text uh, also on the website, freebsd.org. I mean, it might not be the best way to pass information, but it, it's the way that people are most receptive to. Right. So people, like you might actually get a wider reach just because you have the content there. Mm. It's one medium. I, where, yeah. I mean, people can... I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos about trains and aqueducts uh, and yes. sewage systems. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure people would do the same thing for operating for systems. For all kinds of things. Yeah. 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 And so, like, it makes there sense. is like, a market out there. <laughs> I definitely never tell anyone to stop making YouTube videos about BSD. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. We need more of these because uh, it gets people interested in the actual operating system. Then last, uh, but certainly not least, we should mention that uh, we have a loss in the community or losses in the community. This is from the Unix Heritage Society, T-U-H-S. Uh, they uh, have sad news. We, uh, last two, we lost two wonderful people in the last few weeks as on April 9th here. Clem Cole wrote this. And so uh, he personally lost two friends and former colleagues recently that these lists probably wants to know about. I just heard from Lynn Jolitz, Bill's wife, and it seems he passed away. So Bill Jolitz, that is probably very well known from the BSD 386 development. It seems he passed away about a month ago after a long illness. Most of you know he was the original force. That's what he what she writes here uh, behind the BSD 386 development. Uh, he knows little more than what uh, he has gotten from the report at this time, but will pass on any info as he learns about them. Also in other news, not Unix related, but PDP 11 and the computer graphics world. We lost Jack Burness for a a few weeks ago, they did that. Jack as the author of the original Moonlander for the PDP-11, with the, uh, which many of us wasted many hours trying to pick up a Big Mac with fries at Mar Sabet. Oh, is that one of the rings? Uh, I haven't played Moonlander, so don't get the reference. Uh, note, there was no WW or Wikipedia in those days to find it, but to look up Asabet, ah, Asabet River. So many people na naively thought it was a legitimate lunar landmark. Ah, here, that's my mistake I just made. It's the river that the DEC Maynard building sits. Okay, okay, learn something. Uh, he was a larger-than-life person. His jokes mailing list was a who's who on the computer industry. It was an honor to be on it. We all have a parcel of stories about Jack. I've written separately about Jack a number of times, and if you have never looked at the source of Moonlander, you own it to yourself to read it. Remember, he wrote it as a throwaway demo for the GT40 for trade shows. His integer transcendental funks are quite instructive. Okay. So one of the folks on the MassComp alumni list uh, puts it, Jack was someone that just does not deserve to die. Huh. Okay. That's, uh, that's sad. So yeah, uh, sad to hear this. Um, Unix uh, history uh, just lost two important people from... Uh, the past that did a lot of work for the Unix uh, world. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't actually heard of, of Jack Burness before, but um, Bill and Lynn wrote uh, a book, um, a, a one, part, one book as part of a series on the internals of the BSD operating system, talking about their port um, to 386, which is really interesting. Oh. Uh, very, not a very easy book to find now, but it is actually quite interesting. Um, yeah, it's sad news to hear. Did you ever have any contact with, with Bill? Uh, no, he was also new to me. I wasn't that in the Unix historic space. Uh, I mean, I wasn't born that when that was the big thing. But maybe some yeah. of the older Unix folks ha have heard of him or had more uh, insight into the Moonlander. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they have. I have a, a friend, actually, who got in a flame war with Bill Julitz. Oh. That's the only story he has about <laughs> Bill Julitz. He he's told me it many, many, many times. Okay. Um, he likes to tell me about why he uses Linux rather than BSD. Oh, here we which go. Which I always think is really funny. That's... <laughs> it, boil, it boils down to um, he didn't need TCP IP and Linux came with it built out and, and BSD didn't. Ooh, like, okay. Yeah, this is the and, stuff for Flame Wars. Uh, yeah, right and, and the thing is, right, you're talking about a completely different world because I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you need you need a TCP stack. Yeah, you I mean, don't know what you're You need a proper <laughs> TCP a, stack, that yeah, is. I, I don't need that. It's wasting <laughs> 48K in my memory. Go away. <laughs> oh, okay. And then starting that with uh, the bill is probably <laughs> definitely a, a long flame war. Uh, okay. Well, our condolences go out to uh, the family and friends who knew them. 
jumping into feedback and questions this week. Luckily, people listen to our calls for send us more uh, to feedback at bsd.tv. You should still do this. Otherwise, uh, future episodes will also not have enough. But this week we have uh, we have Sam, the first one, with a BSD laptops question. Yeah. And it starts with a, a producer's note from JT. Uh, in digging through my old notes, I found an email that came in for our uh, AMA. But it's a good question, and I think it is worth being answered before the end of the year. Okay. Okay. <laughs> BSD laptops, your strategies, and OEMs. Oh. Mm-hmm. I made the jump to open source desktop operating systems in 2008 after my beloved Apple PowerBook G4 bit the dust. Now, nearly 14 years later, I'm fortunate enough to use FreeBSD professionally and recreationally as a server OS, and I'm looking to make the switch from Linux to FreeBSD on the desktop. I know there are desktop-oriented BSDs out there. As Michael Lucas points out in in Absolute FreeBSD, learning an operating system is like learning a language. Total immersion is the quickest and most powerful way to learn. And user-oriented distros like Debian and Fedora have dulled my wits. In recent years, I've just taken to going to my favorite electronics retailer, finding an inexpensive laptop that I like, and using Dr. Node confirm at least one person on the web has reported running some Linux distro on it. This strategy hasn't worked too well for me, for FreeBSD, mostly because there doesn't seem to be as many people uh, reporting being able to run FreeBSD with a GUI, one of my requirements, on current hardware. I am aware of the laptops running FreeBSD article on the FreeBSD wiki, um, but most of the hardware there is older, and newer laptops have Wi-Fi functionality listed as does not work, or unknown, untested. Yeah, I'm picky. I know the issue of hardware compatibility is asked as an audio on FreeBSD forums, but could you share your own strategies for finding out laptops where FreeBSD can run a desktop environment? Have you had any experience with OEMs who will ship laptops that know FreeBSD, they know FreeBSD can support? I'd love to support a FOSS-friendly OEM, but they either only ship products running Linux or offer BSDs alongside so many Linux issues as to suggest they're just along for the ride. I mean, look at the framework laptop. Yeah, we're probably getting good support on FreeBSDs and some developers got their hands on them finally. Yeah, a couple of, I mean, I don't think Wi-Fi is going to work yet, but it'll nearly be there. Um, yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how anyone can contribute but to helping Soon Wi-Fi. enough. And since these are swappable with other components, um, then I think sooner or later we'll have support there. Otherwise, the ThinkPads are always popular and quite well supported. Yeah, I think so. It, Ed Mast always seemed to be one of the people buying FreeBSD laptops and because he works for the foundation, it, it makes sense. But he got a framework after years of ThinkPads. I think it works pretty well. I think the issue is Wi-Fi. Um, yeah. You can work around with a USB Wi-Fi, but it's probably going to be a hard one if that's a hard requirement for you. Yeah. In a laptop, you want that um, running out of the box because otherwise it's more difficult to uh, attach things or get stuff from the web, like patches. Yeah, my... My approach has always been for FreeBSD hardware to see if I can find people running Linux on it, mm-hmm. um, which is actually sort of a flawed premise because what you find is um, you find blog posts and forum posts uh, by people that could get something running on it and it was enough work to be worth writing about, yeah. but they were also successful. So you don't get like, it, this didn't work at all, or sometimes you do, which is fine, but you also don't get, yeah, it was trivially easy and I had no issues. Um there's also the for- nice bug, uh, dmessage database where people can upload oh, yeah. their dmessage and that should give you an idea of what kind of devices are supported and what kind of, you know, hardware is in that. Typically also, if you have access to a computer store and want to try your favorite laptops or a few of them that you are having your eye on, then pick it, take a desktop distribution like, like Nomad BSD that's coming from a USB stick and just ask the people if you can quickly boot this thing and see how well they support certain things. Uh, that's a good strategy if you have access, physical access to a potential computer store. You could also, uh, you right. could also. Um, I mean, I'm not going to endorse people use Amazon, but that thing. you could take advantage of Amazon's liberal return policy and buy laptops. There's that. Them that. They don't work. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah, it's it's, it's one strategy, um, <laughs> and hopefully, we're getting more support as vendors start getting also interested in supporting BSD more, any kind of BSD. Okay, then we have Reese with the mention on electric graph. Here we go. Graph is still with me uh, after a long pandemic. It's still roaming around my house. Um, hello, thank you for the show. 
uh, he writes, Reese, I have been listening since day one. Oh, great. That's a long listen. <laughs> and I saw this one on my newsfeed and it made me wonder if it could be used as a beast at a BSD conference. Uh, yeah, thank you guys for all that you do. Thank you for the nice feedback. Uh, you post the link to a uh, Meatbacks Kawasaki's rideable robot goat because Japan. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the next level of the goat madness. Yeah, who doesn't need a rideable robot? I, yeah, always should have something like that two. in your garage, right? Yeah, who needs bicycles? <laughs> when you can get a lot right faster into to town with a goat. Or on a yeah, goat. I, you, people would understand they would be much friendlier if you were on a rideable goat. Yeah, don't mess with goats. They just are hilarious. Uh, enemies, uh, when you make up them, they won't forget. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. great. I didn't uh, know about this. Cool. And, and our final question this week comes from Alexandra, um, new to BSD. Hello, I just started listening to your podcast. I think it's great. I want to move my Mac Pro 2019 to FreeBSD, or if not FreeBSD, then any version of BSD. I found one Linux distro that I can boot, but it's not BSD. Is there a BSD distro that can boot a Mac Pro 2019? Or will the BSD distros ever catch up with the one Linux distro? I think it was Ubuntu that I found. Huh, okay. That's some pretty obscure hardware. It's very uh, special, yeah, in that regard. Um, these, they're very expensive computers, so I, I, I'm not sure. If someone has tried this, uh, again, try the um, NiceBug database. That could be a thing, the DMessage database that they have. Maybe someone out there in the world has run this or in some way made it work on the Mac Pro and uploaded the DMesh there. If not, then if you want to table, or table if that's a word, uh, try your um, uh, BSD skills a little bit more, then maybe run a virtual machine on that and then run a FreeBSD in there, like a virtual box or something. That should be, there you can try out various distros, uh, NetBSD, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, or any other desktop BSD distribution. That's a good way of making um, a little bit of getting experience and also not damaging things because you're not running on the real hardware. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't see why FreeBSD would. I mean, I can't see why this would be any different than any other, um, like 2019 Mac. I mean, this is an Intel Mac, so it should be doable. Yeah, should boot um, from UEFI and stuff. It, it should shouldn't be different than booting from, like, booting on a on a like an, a later generation Intel MacBook. Um, yeah. Or an iMac, like it should be similar. You, I don't think you need to be very specific about the Mac Pro. Um, I mean, the processors are not going to be actually very different to what FreeBSD normally. Yeah, that's still Intel there. or non. Yeah, and the workstation class processors, so we would probably have very good support. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you need to worry about that specific, that level of specific, being less specific about um, the computer, like. I think if you could get FreeBSD to boot on, boot on another Mac, and I think it shouldn't be that hard, then you could get it to boot on this. Yeah, it could just be a matter of downloading a USB image and running it. Yeah, that should hidden that shouldn't hinder you from getting your uh, feet wet in the BSD space. Yeah, like the bigger problem you're going to have is that um, these are really expensive computers, so the people that have them probably. Uh, if I was going to spend that much money on a computer to run FreeBSD. It, it, I wouldn't buy a Mac Pro. Yeah, this is not your ideal or your typical starting device. But if you have one around, that's not used for anything else that yet or still. I mean, if, if if someone has a spare 2019 Mac Pro they want to send me, <laughs> Excellent. I will run FreeBSD on it. For them. <laughs> nice plug here. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we have a Patreon. It was worth a shot. Um, yeah. So, what else can we tell Alexandra what she should try, or um, as a beginner, as a, as a newbie in the BSD space? Yeah, run run a virtual machine. It's 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 not a lesser experience. Right. If you're uh, used to the command line on the Mac, then you're very familiar. Or will be very familiar on the BSDs because the many of the commands, as you probably know, were carried over from the FreeBSD or userland parts. Yeah, and if you want to run like an open source desktop on the Mac Pro, then you can still run it in a virtual machine. Like it'll still be okay. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, um, and the power of that machine should give it enough. Uh, yeah, and, and this stands, of course, for other um, BSD operating systems. They'll run in virtual machines fine. Yeah, check out the and handbook. You can get the same experience. Right. Yeah. So check out the handbook for any questions you might have once you have it running or the FreeBSD forums or any other uh, BSD forums, uh, other operating systems, other BSDs that you probably try out. It's definitely good to try out a couple of BSDs to see what they, uh, how they work, what kind of you know 
first time experience, you will get with them. And first do some distro hopping, and then pick one and run with that. That's what most people did. I, I know a couple of people who use multiple BSDs. Um, also depends a bit what kind of use case you have in mind for this. Is this a file server? Is this um, such uh, other projects related things? But this machine can do pretty much anything. Okay, um, if you have more questions, then definitely send us more. This way, we're always happy to get newbies up to speed in their BSD experiences. Okay, I think that's it. We have nothing more on our list of uh, topics here in this episode. Uh, we thank you for listening as always. Anything else from you, Tom? No, no. Thanks for listening to our lovely show. Mm -hmm. I look forward to more feedback and questions. Yeah, always. That's our main motivation. Uh, like after this typical news bits at the beginning, we have the, the feedback and questions. That's where we are totally unprepared most of the time what kind of questions we get. And we can't answer all of them or not always satisfactorily maybe but we know the bsd space quite well so we there's a big chance that you can get your question answered all right that's it for us from now have a nice week and we will be back next week at this space at this spot as usual <laughs>